0: Chapter 16 of Travels in Alaska. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by John Dennison. Travels in Alaska by John Muir, Chapter 16, Glacier Bay. While Stakine and I were away, Ahuna, one of the headmen of the tribe, paid Mr. Young a visit and presented him with porpoise meat and berries, and much interesting information. He naturally expected a return visit, and when we called at his house, a mile or two down the fjord, he said his wives were out in the rain, gathering fresh berries, to complete a feast prepared for us. We remained, however, only a few minutes, for I was not aware of this arrangement, or of Mr. Young's promise, until after leaving the house. Anxiety to get around Cape Wimbledon was the cause of my haste, fearing the storm might increase on account of this ignorance no apologies were offered him and the upshot was that the good hoona became very angry we succeeded however in the evening of the same day in explaining our haste and by sincere apologies and presents made peace after a hard struggle we got around stormy wimbledon and into the next fiord to the northward cluna dundas bay a cold drenching rain was falling darkening but not altogether hiding its extraordinary beauty made up of lovely reaches and side-fjords, feathery headlands and islands, beautiful every one, and charmingly collocated. But how it rained, and how cold it was, and how weary we were, pulling most of the time against the wind! The branches of this bay were so deep and so numerous, that with the rain and low clouds concealing the mountain landmarks, we could hardly make out the main trends, while groping and gazing among the islands through the misty rain and clouds, we discovered wisps of smoke at the foot of a sheltering rock in front of a mountain, where a choir of cascades were chanting their rain songs. Gladly we made for this camp, which proved to belong to a rare old Huna sub-chief, so tall and wide and dignified in demeanour he looked grand even in the sloppy weather, and every inch a chief in spite of his bare legs and the old shirt and draggled ragged blanket in which he was dressed. He was given to much handshaking, gripping hard, holding on, and looking you gravely in the face while most emphatically speaking in Flinkit, not a word of which we understood, until Interpreter John came to our help. He turned from one to the other of us, declaring, as John interpreted, that our presence did him good, like food and fire, that he would welcome white men, especially teachers, and that he and all his people, compared to ourselves, were only children. When Mr. Young informed him that a missionary was about to be sent to his people, He said he would call them all together four times, and explain that a teacher and preacher were coming, and that they therefore must put away all foolishness, and prepare their hearts to receive them and their words. He then introduced his three children, one a naked lad, five or six years old, who, as he fondly assured us, would soon be a chief, and later, to his wife, an intelligent-looking woman of whom he seemed proud. When we arrived, she was out at the front of the Cascade Mountain, gathering salmon-berries, She came in dripping, and loaded. A few of the fine berries saved for the children she presented proudly and fondly, beginning with the youngest, whose only clothing was a nose-ring and a string of beads. She was lightly apparelled in a cotton gown and bit of blanket, thoroughly bedraggled, but after unloading her berries, she retired with a dry calico gown around the corner of a rock, and soon returned fresh as a daisy, and with becoming dignity took her place by the fireside. Soon two other berry-laden women came in, seemingly enjoying the rain like the bushes and trees. They put on little clothing so that they may be more easily dried, and, as for the children, a thin shirt of sheeting is the most they encumber themselves with, and get wet and half dry without seeming to notice it while we shiver with two or three dry coats. They seem to prefer being naked. The men also wear but little in wet weather. When they go out for all day they put on a single blanket, But in choring around the camp, getting firewood, cooking, or looking after their precious canvas, they seldom wear anything, braving wind and rain and utter nakedness to avoid the bother of drying clothes. It is a rare sight to see the children bringing in big chunks of firewood on their shoulders, balancing and crossing boulders with firmly set bow legs and bulging back muscles. We gave Kauhudu Sho, the old chief, some tobacco and rice and coffee, and pitched our tent near his hut among tall grass soon after our arrival the taylor bay sub-chief came in from the opposite direction from ours telling us that he came through a cut-off passage not on our chart as stated above we took pains to conciliate him and soothe his hurt feelings our words and gifts he said had warmed his sore heart and made him glad and comfortable a view down the bay among the islands was i thought the finest of this kind of scenery that i had yet observed the weather continued cold and rainy Nevertheless, Mr. Young and I, and our crew, together with one of the Hunas, an old man who acted as guide, left camp to explore one of the upper arms of the bay, where, we were told, there was a large glacier. We managed to push the canoe several miles up the stream that drains the glacier to a point where the swift current was divided among rocks, and the banks were overhung with alders and willows. I left the canoe and pushed up the right bank past a magnificent waterfall some twelve hundred feet high and over the shoulder of a mountain, until I secured a good view of the lower part of the glacier. It is probably a lobe of the Taylor Bay or Brady Glacier. On our return to camp, thoroughly drenched and cold, the old chief came to visit us, apparently as wet and cold as ourselves. I have been thinking of you all day, he said, and pitying you, knowing how miserable you were, and as soon as I saw your canoe coming back, I was ashamed to think that I had been sitting warm and dry at my fire while you were out in the storm. Therefore, I made haste to strip off my dry clothing and put on these wet rags to share your misery and show how much I love you. I had another long talk with Kahurusho the next day. I am not able, he said, to tell you how much good your words have done me. Your words are good, AND THEY ARE STRONG WORDS. SOME OF MY PEOPLE ARE FOOLISH, AND WHEN THEY MAKE THEIR SALMON TRAPS THEY DO NOT TAKE CARE TO TIE THE POLES FIRMLY TOGETHER, AND WHEN THE BIG rain floods COME, THE TRAPS BREAK, AND ARE WASHED AWAY, BECAUSE THE PEOPLE WHO MADE THEM ARE FOOLISH PEOPLE. BUT YOUR WORDS ARE STRONG WORDS, AND WHEN STORMS COME TO TRY THEM, THEY WILL STAND THE STORMS. THERE WAS MUCH handshaking AS WE TOOK OUR LEAVE, AND ASSURANCES OF ETERNAL FRIENDSHIP. The grand old man stood on the shore watching us, and waving farewell until we were out of sight. We now steered for the Muir Glacier, and arrived at the front on the east side the evening of the third, and camped on the end of the moraine, where there was a small stream. Captain Tyne was inclined to keep at a safe distance from the tremendous threatening cliffs of the discharging wall. After a good deal of urging, he ventured within half a mile of them, on the east side of the fjord, where, with Mr. Young, I went ashore to seek a campground on the moraine, leaving the Indians in the canoe. In a few minutes after we landed, a huge berg sprung aloft with awful commotion, and the frightened Indians incontinently fled down the fjord, plying their paddles with admirable energy in the tossing waves until a safe harbour was reached around the south end of the moraine. I found a good place for a camp in a slight hollow, where a few spruce stumps afforded firewood, "'but all efforts to get Tyene out of his harbour failed. "'Nobody knew,' he said, "'how far the angry ice mountain could throw waves to break his canoe. "'Therefore I had my bedding and some provisions carried to my stump camp, "'where I could watch the bergs as they were discharged "'and get night views of the brow of the glacier "'and its sheer jagged face all the way across from side to side of the channel. "'One night the water was luminous, "'and the surge from discharging icebergs churned the water into silver fire.' a glorious sight in the darkness. I also went back up the east side of the glacier five or six miles, and ascended a mountain between its first two eastern tributaries, which, though covered with grass near the top, was exceedingly steep and difficult. A bulging ridge near the top, I discovered, was formed of ice, a remnant of the glacier when it stood at this elevation, which had been preserved by moraine material, and later by a thatch of dwarf bushes and grass. Next morning at daybreak, I pushed eagerly back over the comparatively smooth eastern margin of the glacier to see as much as possible of the upper fountain region. About five miles back from the front, I climbed a mountain 2,500 feet high, from the flowery summit of which, the day being clear, the vast glacier and its principal branches were displayed in one magnificent view. Instead of a stream of ice winding down a mountain-walled valley, like the largest of the Swiss glaciers, The muir looks like a broad, undulating prairie, streaked with medial moraines, and gashed with crevasses, surrounded by numberless mountains, from which flow its many tributary glaciers. There are seven main tributaries from ten to twenty miles long, and from two to six miles wide, where they enter the trunk, each of them fed by many secondary tributaries, so that the whole number of branches, great and small, pouring from the mountain fountains, perhaps number upward of two hundred, not counting the smallest. The area drained by this one grand glacier can hardly be less than seven or eight hundred miles, and probably contains as much ice as all the eleven hundred Swiss glaciers combined. Its length from the frontal wall back to the head of its farthest fountain seemed to be about forty or fifty miles, and the width just below the confluence of the main tributaries about twenty-five miles. Though apparently motionless as the mountains, it flows on forever, the speed varying in every part with the seasons, but mostly with the depth of the current and the declivity, smoothness and directness of the different portions of the basin. The flow of the central cascading portion near the front, as determined by Professor Reed, is at the rate of from two and a half to five inches an hour, or from five to ten feet a day. A strip of the main trunk about a mile in width, extending along the eastern margin about fourteen miles to a lake filled with bergs, has so little motion, and is so little interrupted by crevasses, a hundred horsemen might ride abreast over it without encountering very much difficulty. But far the greater portion of the vast expanse looking smooth in the distance is torn and crumpled into a bewildering network of hummocky ridges and blades, separated by yawning gulfs and crevasses, so that the explorer, crossing it from shore to shore, must always have a hard time. In hollow spots here and there in the heart of the icy wilderness are small lakelets fed by swift glancing streams that flow without friction in blue shining channels, making delightful melody, singing and ringing in silvery tones of peculiar sweetness, radiant crystals like flowers, ineffably fine, growing in dazzling beauty along their banks. Few, however, will be likely to enjoy them. Fortunately to most travellers, the thundering ice wall, while comfortably accessible, is also the most strikingly interesting portion of the glacier. The mountains about the great glacier were also seen from this standpoint in exceedingly grand and telling views. Ranged and grouped in glorious array, along the valleys of the main tributaries to the northwestward. I saw far into their shadowy depths, one noble peak in its snowy robes appearing beyond another in fine perspective." One of the most remarkable of them, fashioned like a superb crown with delicately fluted sides, stands in the middle of the second main tributary, counting from left to right. To the westward, the magnificent Fairweather range is displayed in all its glory, lifting its peaks and glaciers into the blue sky. Mount Fairweather, though not the highest, is the noblest and most majestic in port and architecture of all the sky-dwelling company. La Perouse, at the south end of the range, it is also a magnificent mountain, symmetrically peaked and sculptured, and wears its robes of snow and glaciers in noble style. Lituya, as seen from here, is an immense tower, severely plain and massive. It makes a fine and terrible and lonely impression. Krilong, though the loftiest of all, being nearly 16,000 feet high, presents no well-marked features, Its ponderous glaciers have grounded away into long curling ridges until, from this point of view, it resembles a huge twisted shell. The lower summits about the Muir glacier, like this one, the first that I climbed, are richly adorned and enlivened with flowers, though they make but a faint show in general views. Lines and dashes of bright green appear on the lower slopes as one approaches them from the glacier, and a fainter green tinge may be noticed on the subordinate summits, at a height of two thousand or three thousand feet. The lower are mostly alder bushes, and the topmost a lavish profusion of flowering plants, chiefly Cassiopeia, Vassinium, Pyrola, Erigeron, Gentiana, Campanula, Campanula, Anemone, Larkspur, and Columbine, with a few grasses and ferns. Of these, Cassiope is at once the commonest and the most beautiful and influential. In some places its delicate stems make mattresses more than a foot thick over several acres, while the bloom is so abundant that a single handful plucked at random contains hundreds of its pale pink bells. The very thought of this Alaska garden is a joyful exhilaration. Though the storm-beaten ground it is growing on is nearly half a mile high, the glacier centuries ago flowed over it as a river flows over a boulder but out of all the cold darkness and glacial crushing and grinding comes this warm, abounding beauty and life to teach us that what we in our faithless ignorance and fear call destruction is creation, finer and finer. When night was approaching, I scrambled down out of my blessed garden to the glacier and returned to my lonely camp, and, getting some coffee and bread, again went up the moraine to the east end of the great ice wall. It is about three miles long, but the length of the jagged, berg producing portion that stretches across the fjord from side to side like a huge green and blue barrier is only about two miles and rises above the water to a height of from 250 to 300 feet. Soundings made by Captain Carroll show that 720 feet of the wall is below the surface, and a third unmeasured portion is buried beneath the moraine detritus deposited at the foot of it. Therefore were the water and rocky detritus cleared away a sheer precipice of ice would be presented nearly two miles long and more than a thousand feet high seen from a distance as you come up the fjord it seems comparatively regular in form but it is far otherwise bold jagged capes jut forward into the fjord alternating with deep re-entering angles and craggy hollows with plain bastions while the top is roughened with innumerable spires and pyramids and sharp hacked blades leaning and toppling, or cutting straight into the sky. The number of bergs given off varies somewhat with the weather and the tides, the average being about one every five or six minutes, counting only those that roar loud enough to make themselves heard at a distance of two or three miles. The very largest, however, may, under favorable conditions, be heard ten miles or even farther. When a large mass sinks from the upper fissured portion of the wall, there is first a keen, prolonged, thundering roar, which slowly subsides into a low muttering growl, followed by numerous smaller grating clashing sounds from the agitated bergs that dance in the waves about the newcomer as if in welcome. And these again are followed by the swash and roar of the waves that are raised and hurled up the beach against the moraines. But the largest and most beautiful of the bergs Instead of thus falling from the upper-weathered portion of the wall, rise from the submerged portion with a still grander commotion, springing with tremendous voice and gestures nearly to the top of the wall, tons of water streaming like hair down their sides, plunging and rising again and again before they finally settle in perfect poise, free at last, after having formed part of the slow-crawling glacier for centuries. And, as we contemplate their history, as they sail calmly away down the fjord to the sea, how wonderful it seems that ice formed from pressed snow on the far-off mountains two or three hundred years ago, should still be pure and lovely in color after all its travel and toil in the rough mountain quarries, grinding and fashioning the features of predestined landscapes. When sunshine is sifting through the midst of the multitude of icebergs that fill the fjord, and through the jets of radiant spray ever rising from the tremendous dashing and splashing of the falling and upspringing bergs, the effect is indescribably glorious. Glorious, too, are the shows they make in the night when the moon and stars are shining. The berg thunder seems far louder than by day, and the projecting buttresses seem higher as they stand forward in the pale light. Relieved by gloomy hollows while the newborn bergs are dimly seen, crowned with faint lunar rainbows in the up-dashing spray. But it is in the darkest nights when storms are blowing and the waves are phosphorescent that the most impressive displays are made. Then the long range of ice bluffs is plainly seen stretching through the gloom in weird, unearthly splendor. Luminous wave foam dashing against every bluff and drifting berg, and ever and anon, amid all this natural auroral splendor, some huge new-born berg dashes the living water into yet brighter foam, and the streaming torrents pouring from its sides are worn as robes of light, while they roar in awful accord with the winds and waves, deep calling unto deep, glacier to glacier, from fjord to fjord over all the wonderful bay. After spending a few days here, we struck across to the main Huna village on the south side of Icy Strait, thence by a long cut-off with one short portage to Chatham Strait, and thence down through Peril Strait, sailing all night, hoping to catch the mail steamer at Sitka. We arrived at the head of the strait about daybreak. The tide was falling, and rushing down with a swift current as if descending a majestic cataract was a memorable experience. We reached Sitka the same night, and there I paid and discharged my crew, making allowance for a couple of days or so for the journey back home to Fort Wrangell, while I boarded the steamer for Portland. And thus ended my explorations for this season End of Chapter sixteen Recording by John Dennison Soundscaperadio dot com